You are listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. But, before we begin, here are a few words about a couple of other podcasts that we think you might want to try. Hello, I'm Erin Fleming, host of the true crime podcast Red Run Blonde. Each week I pick a different true crime case to explore. Some famous ones and then not so famous. It's a variety of solved and unsolved, but the details are always consistently dark and disturbing. Red Run Blonde is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I also have a Red Run Blonde Facebook page. I'm on Twitter at Blonde Red Rum and Instagram. So join me each week to look at the darker side of life. For many of us, scary stories are more than just campfire tales and the stuff of horror movies. Some of us have actually lived it. Or perhaps some of us know someone who has. Or for most of us out there, we're simply curious about those eerie tales that balance on the edge of fiction and reality. The Night Owl Podcast is a monthly podcast featuring true tales of the paranormal. Join me, your host, Stephen Ballou, as I track down haunted places and personal ghost stories, dig deep into the mysteries surrounding them, and share it all with you right here. Each episode features candid stories straight from the mouths of those who actually experienced them. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Visit thenightowlpodcast.com for more info. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for sneak peeks and behind-the-scenes photos for upcoming episodes. And if you have a ghost story you'd like us to consider for the show, email us at thenightowlpodcast at gmail.com. Stay restless out there, everyone, and be sure to tune in for the first episode on October 30th. We'll see you soon. Welcome to the Forgotten News Podcast. This is your window to hear true stories from long ago. Stories that once made headlines. Stories that people thought would be unforgettable. Yet those stories were soon lost in the sands of time or were buried deep in the dustbin of history. In this podcast, we shake off the sand and dust from those stories and share them here with you as fresh as the day they were first told. And now, here's your host. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number eight of the Forgotten News Podcast. And thank you for listening. My name is Jim, and I'm going to start by apologizing for the fact that there has been a delay of several weeks in getting out a new episode. The reasons for the delay were nearly all beyond my control, but I want to apologize to you, the listeners, anyway. 
I am cautiously hopeful that we will have one or more additional new episodes this month and that we will be releasing episodes on a much more regularized basis in the upcoming year. In addition, despite our current delay in releasing a new episode, I'm happy to announce that we've reached nearly 4,700 downloads in the five months since the launch of this podcast. So, it is highly likely that within a week after the release of this episode, we will probably have over 5,000 downloads. And thus, with that in mind, despite all of our problems and delays, let me again thank each and every one of you who has tuned in today. And I hope you will continue to listen in the future. Okay, now, before we begin our featured story, I have a few important items of news in regard to the podcast that I am going to take a moment to mention. First, you may have already noticed something different about this episode. There is no background music during my narration. This is our plan for the remainder of the episode and also for all future episodes. But this does not mean that there will be no music on the podcast. There will be bumper music as needed, and there will be occasional bits of music sometimes to set the mood for a scene or whatever else it might possibly be needed for. And, of course, there will be background music in the brief intro and extra segments of our podcast. The reason for this change is that it just takes too much time and energy to find appropriate background music, let alone to adjust the volume so that it does not drown out the narration. Also, I have learned from listeners who have auditory issues or weakness in being able to hear that any background music at any volume level interferes with their ability to clearly hear the narration. So, for all of these reasons, we have chosen to phase out background music, if not entirely, then almost entirely, and we wanted to let you know that was happening, starting with this episode. The next thing I'm going to mention is that if you are a listener who has left a review of our show on iTunes at any time in the past two or three months, be sure to keep listening after our featured story, because there will be shout-outs for your reviews. Especially if you live outside the U.S. and have left a review for the podcast, because I only recently discovered how to see reviews from people in other countries. So, if you live outside the U.S. and you have ever left us a review, you will get a shout-out during the review segment near the end of this episode, as will anyone within the U.S. who's left a review within the past few months. All right, enough about that. My next important announcement is that I am extremely pleased to introduce Kit Karen, who will soon be a voice that you will recognize 
on a regular basis on the show. Beginning with this episode, she will be a regular contributor, both as an occasional co-host or guest host, and also from time to time, she will be a voice of various random historical people in our featured stories. Kit is a really talented voice artist, and I could go on and on about her, but I'd much rather have her tell you. So, take it away, Kit. Hello, everyone. My name is Kit Karen, and I'm looking forward to joining with Jim and being part of the team of people who put together each episode of the Forgotten News podcast. I have been working in theater since I was a kid, and over the past three years, I've been focusing on audio performance. You'll be hearing my voice later on in this episode and also on future episodes. I'll sometimes be the voice of a historical person, and other times I might be helping Jim with narration or other random segments of the show. So you'll be hearing my voice from time to time, and I do so hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you, Kit. I think that once our listeners get to know you, they will just totally love you and look forward to hearing your voice. Now, as I said, I have one other important announcement. This one is a little sad. At least, it's sad for me. And it may be sad for you, too. But I'm just going to go ahead and say it, even though it's kind of hard. So, here it is. If you are a regular listener, you will know that Annabelle DC has been my sidekick on this show since almost the first episode. Unfortunately, she has recently informed me that she cannot continue with this podcast, basically due to the fact that the rest of her life has simply gotten too busy and there are only 24 hours in the day. So, if you were a big fan of Annabelle, I am sorry, and she is sorry. But, if you'd like to contact her for any reason, she would be happy to hear from you at her email address, which is annabelleaudios at hotmail.com. But, be careful with your spelling of that address, because Annabelle is spelled with only one N. And that address should be typed as all one word with no hyphens, dashes, or underscores. Again, that address is annabelleaudios at hotmail.com. I am very sad that Annabelle is leaving, but I think it is more important for her to have happiness, peace, and stability in her life. All right, now I need to move on to our featured story, or I'm just going to get too choked up to talk. So, here we go. We will start with a warning to our listeners, because this episode will touch on a few topics that some of you may want to know about in advance before we begin. Kit. Could you please tell our audience about anything that might possibly be a point of concern in this episode? No problem, Jim. A warning to listeners. 
This episode contains brief references to nudity and exotic dance performers, which could be offensive to some members of our audience, notwithstanding that our featured story takes place in the 1890s. However, the specific facts will be kept to the absolute minimum needed to tell the story in a historically accurate way, and there will be no foul language. But even so, if you think that hearing about these things could possibly cause you to have a negative emotional reaction, then this episode might not be something you should listen to. In addition, the story that is being featured is definitely not recommended for children. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Thank you, Kit. I think that you summed all of that up very nicely. And so... On with the show. I will start by saying that the details of the featured story in this episode come from various newspapers, court records, reference books, and a whole lot of other material that I came across in one place or another. I will also add that one of the reasons that this episode was delayed was because of the length of time it took to research this story and to separate the actual facts versus rumor, exaggeration, and urban legend. Anyway, moving along. Our story begins in December of 1896 in New York City. A wealthy 29-year-old man named Clinton Barnum Seeley was engaged to marry Florence Tuttle, an equally wealthy 28-year-old woman. Clinton had a 25-year-old brother named Herbert Barnum Seeley. They were the grandchildren of the famous circus owner and flim-flam man P.T. Barnum on their mother's side of the family tree. Herbert was in charge of putting together a bachelor party for his brother. It is a bit unclear whether Herbert put himself in charge or if his brother had asked him, but one thing is definitely clear. Herbert wanted to throw an awesome party, one that nobody would forget. And that was exactly what happened. But not exactly the way that Herbert Seeley had intended. And I will now tell you the story of what happened, and also the story behind the story. Herbert put a lot of energy into planning and organizing the party. It would be held at a restaurant called Sherry's, which was then one of the most famous and expensive places for fine dining in New York. He visited numerous theatrical agents to get 
just the right kind of entertainment for his brother's party. He was not very specific, but he did make one thing extremely clear. This was going to be a bachelor party, not a Sunday school. And he wanted it to sizzle. Eventually, he lined up exactly the kind of entertainment that he thought his... Because he had been repeatedly mocked in the newspapers, and he absolutely wanted a chance to tell his side of the story. Meanwhile, according to Police Commissioner Parker, who also happened to be a lawyer, the hearing would get everything out in the open, and it would, quote, take less than an hour, unquote, and that would be that. Well, even though Parker had a reputation for not only being intelligent, but also for having street smarts, he was evidently not a very good prophet. Parker had based his prediction on the assumption that none of the guests at the party would have any desire to testify. However, in making that assumption, Parker somehow forgot about the performers. They wanted to testify. They wanted their names on the front pages of the newspapers. It meant publicity for them, and it would be free. In fact, before the decision to hold a hearing had even been finalized, one dancer had signed a sworn statement that she had been recruited and paid $100 to perform two dances. Now, I think I should mention that $100 in 1896 is the equivalent of nearly $3,000 today. So, with that in mind, I'll move on to exactly what she had been hired to do. First, as I mentioned, she had been hired to perform two dances. In one of the dances, she was to be wearing a costume that mainly consisted of tights and some kind of thin, almost transparent cloth material that would cover the upper part of her body and a small bolero jacket. In the other dance, she was to be wearing only stockings or tights. In addition, she was also hired to do a little pose on a little pedestal. Anyway, time went by, and on the night of the party, she was waiting for her cue to begin the performance. She was in a private room where she was being fueled with champagne until Herbert Seeley was alerted to the arrival of the police. She was then hustled off to a side room to hide. After the police left the building, she did indeed do her first dance, and she was more than willing to drop her costume. But because of worry that the police might return, she was advised to keep her clothes on. And who was this dancer? Well, her professional name was Little Egypt. She claimed her real name to be <laughs> Her specialty was the Dante de Montra. She was 
18 years old and spoke in a combination of broken English, broken French, and some other dialect that was all her own. According to a description in one newspaper at the time, quote, she speaks in a patois that may be intelligible on the docks of Marseille, but that certainly would not be understood in Paris, unquote. Oh, and speaking of French, that fancy phrase, in plain English, it just means belly dance. Anyway, Little Egypt had been called down to police headquarters by Captain Chapman to tell her story. He had learned from an informant that she had been carefully hidden from him during the raid on the party. So, at police headquarters, she met with Commissioner Parker and fellow Commissioner Theodore Roosevelt. She thoroughly enjoyed her conversation with Parker, to the point that she called him a prince and seemed to have a little crush on him. In contrast, her opinion of Roosevelt contained no fondness at all. He, he showed me his truth. He looks so mad. I don't like him. By the way, in case you were wondering, yes, this is the very same Theodore Roosevelt who had become President of the United States only five years later. But despite the fact that Little Egypt had these very mixed feelings about the two police commissioners, she was more than happy to sign a sworn affidavit summarizing what she had told them because it meant she could leave. Uh, I make my statement. I swear. I sign. I go away. And at this point, little Egypt may not have known it, but her statement was a ticking time bomb that would soon explode in the faces of the men who had been at the party. <laughs> I do not know why everybody makes a fuss. Well, after this, the chain of events is not entirely clear, but somehow Little Egypt came to the realization that it might be a good idea to get herself a lawyer. And she did. But not just one lawyer, she got two. And not just any two, she got William Howe and Abraham Hummel. In the 1890s, they were the top criminal defense lawyers in New York. They were extremely successful at winning cases. And because success tends to generate more success, they had no trouble obtaining clients. At one point, they represented over 90% of all felony suspects in the city. They especially liked cases that had the potential to turn the legal system upside down and inside out. For example, in one case, Abe Hummel found a loophole that sprang every crook who had been convicted of second-degree murder in New York State. But here, thanks to Little Egypt, the law firm of Howe and Hummel was smack at the center of a case 
that could make a mockery of both the police department and the morals, or lack of morals, of the rich and ultra-rich of New York City. William Howe would be her primary attorney and spokesperson during the upcoming hearing. He was more than eager to jump into the case, and he decided that he was going to have fun, and nothing but fun. He began calling himself, quote-unquote, the Prime Minister for Little Egypt. His partner, Abe Hummel, would be in charge of doing any and all research that was necessary. The hearing opened on January 7, 1897, with Herbert and Clinton Seeley represented by an attorney named Colonel E.C. James. The first thing Colonel James did was to attempt to short-circuit the hearing by filing a motion to exclude any testimony by Little Egypt or the other performers on the ground that they were disreputable characters. The motion was rejected almost as soon as it was filed, and that was a terribly bad thing for the Seeley brothers, since it was the only possible way for them to prevent themselves from being humiliated in the newspapers and in the gossip mill. The fact is, very few people truly cared about whether the raid by Captain Chapman was legal or not. The thing that the public, and for that matter, the Board of Police Commissioners, really wanted to know was what had actually happened during the bachelor party on that night. The chairman of the Board of Commissioners was a man named Fred Grant. He was the son of Ulysses Grant, the general who had led the U.S. Army to victory in the American Civil War and who later became President of the United States. Well, although Ulysses was a very hard-nosed general, Fred was not a hard-nosed chairman. He allowed all sorts of random testimony by the witnesses on the basis that it might help the board, in one way or another, to get the full picture of what exactly had happened. Neither he, nor the board as a whole, seemed to mind that much of the testimony was completely irrelevant. They apparently believed it was in the interest of justice for them and the public to hear every tiny detail about the party and also the personal history of the performers. William Howe, the attorney for Little Egypt, had come to the hearing full of smiles and enthusiasm and wearing a polka dot tie and five sparkling diamonds pinned to his suit. He almost always wore diamonds in court. It was his way of ensuring that all eyes were on him. However, he was not someone that you would easily miss anyway. He was over six feet tall and weighed more than 300 pounds. He spoke with a big, booming voice. But he didn't have just any voice. Although he had been born in the United States, he had grown up in London, England, because his family had moved there when he was little. And as a result, he had a strong Cockney accent, even after he moved back to the U.S. at age 21.
the accent remained for his entire life. Anyway, getting back to the hearing. On the first day, the testimony, for the most part, was boring. In fact, so much so that Roosevelt actually dozed off at one point. He did not come back the next day, or ever. The announced purpose of the hearing was to investigate and decide whether Captain Chapman had a legally reasonable basis to enter the restaurant and to question those who were inside. So it really shouldn't have mattered what the entertainers had been doing. Hence, for that reason, Colonel James, as the attorney for the Seeley brothers, filed a motion to keep out any evidence or testimony of what had taken place during the party. But all of those legal niceties simply vanished almost as soon as Big Bill Howe took the floor, responding to the motion with a 10-minute speech about the need to protect public morality and that this was an inherent duty of the police commissioners and the fact that it was always necessary to uncover the truth, all the truth, in order for justice to prevail in a democratic society. Colonel James replied by standing up and shouting, What does all that matter? They are trying to turn this hearing into a fishing expedition. Chairman Grant thought it over and basically decided he would let them fish. On the second day of the hearing, Herbert Seeley was called to the witness stand to tell the story behind his brother's bachelor party and what had happened there and how it came to be. During questioning, he was asked about what type of entertainment he had requested from his theatrical agent. I told Mr. Phillips I thought my guests might enjoy a few hot songs, some entertainment that had ginger. I did not want an exposure of the person. I certainly didn't ask for anything depraved or immoral. However, as the hearing went on, it soon became obvious that this statement by Herbert Seeley was less than accurate. In fact, in the words of one newspaper, the New York World, the details were, quote, worse than disgusting, unquote, and refused to print them. Well, although Herbert spent his time at the hearing basically squirming and sweating and doing everything he could think of to avoid telling the truth, the women who had performed at the party were having a great time. They loved every minute they spent on the witness stand and were thrilled to have the free publicity of getting their names on the front page of every newspaper in New York the next day. One dancer, Cora Root, age 19, had nothing nice to say about Captain Chapman. She testified as to how he had yelled mean things at her in the dressing room. She was asked what happened when he left. She smiled then gave her answer. I said goodbye. I waved my hand and blew him a kiss. Cora then made an elaborate gesture, imitating a wave goodbye, and blew a kiss toward Bill Howe. He loved it. Apparently, so did everyone else, because the room was immediately filled with giggles, muffled and otherwise. A little while later, 
when Miss Root left the witness stand, she turned towards Captain Chapman and bowed. She then elaborately waltzed out of the room, just like she would often do whenever she would finish a song and dance performance on stage. She was followed on the witness stand by 18-year-old Lottie Mortimer. Now, depending on your source of information, she was either a high-kick dancer, a skirt dancer, or a serpentine dancer. Perhaps she was all three, for all I know. But apparently, she was quite skilled, because according to one review of her act, she was, quote-unquote, a complete entertainment within herself. Anyway, as I mentioned, Lottie was on the witness stand being questioned when she was suddenly asked about a toast she had given at the party. Her face slowly turned red with embarrassment when she was asked what exactly the toast had been. However, the embarrassment quickly faded when she looked around the room and saw many encouraging smiles. And so, she brightly smiled back and, speaking with a crisp, clear voice, told exactly what her toast had been. Well, the next day, one newspaper, the New York Sun, described the toast as, quote-unquote, pure filth. The New York World said that it was obscene in the extreme. Both newspapers refused to print it. But the toast was not the only thing that Lottie would testify about. She went on to speak about some other interesting things that had happened during her appearance at the party. After I performed the dance that I was hired to do, I was in the dressing room putting my clothes on when Mr. Phipps insisted that I go on again, but with my dress unfastened. So I danced again, and I was mauled and pulled this way and that by the men they were drunk, and some of them got the idea to cut the straps of my dress, and that's just what they did. But the thing they didn't know was that I had a bodice that would stay up even without the strap, so that's where they got fooled. I was given a gift to give to Mr. Seeley. I don't want to say what it was, because I don't like to call it by the only name I know for it. A few moments later, Lottie was asked if she had seen Little Egypt dance at the party. Yes, I saw Little Egypt do her dance when I was at Sherry's, and I saw what she wore. I could see her skin through her costume. I think it was made out of some kind of thin gauze material. It made her practically naked. The next witness was Minnie Renwood, a 20-year-old singer, dancer, and comedian. She spoke very plainly, under oath, about her interactions with Mr. Seeley and his theatrical agent, Mr. Phipps. I was in the dressing room... I had taken off most of my clothes, and I was just about to put on the costume for my dance. It was kind of a female Santa Claus costume for a dance called Santa Up to Date. Mr. Phipps and another man, I don't know his name, suddenly came into the room and started talking to me, like as if they didn't even notice that I was almost completely naked. They said they wanted to talk about the dance I was going to do. They wanted me to dance with my back exposed with signs painted on it. They wouldn't tell me what the signs would say, but it didn't matter because I told them I wouldn't do it. They tried to cajole me to do it, but I just kept saying no. 
and they finally stopped asking me. Well, even though, for the most part, the women seem to really be enjoying their time at the hearing, as well as all the free publicity they were getting in the newspapers, with one scintillating article after another, telling of what had happened behind the scenes, the men who had been at the party and who were now compelled to testify at the hearing, let's just say it was not a happy place for them. Not at all. They went on the witness stand, one by one, and tried to lie and pretend that nothing remotely scandalous had happened. But the real truth slowly dribbled out, bit by bit, and the men sank deeper and deeper into an ocean of humiliation. One truthful thing that was revealed on the witness stand was that Captain Chapman had gotten his original tip about the party from a man named William Moore. However, unknown to the captain, Mr. Moore was not some random concerned citizen. He was a theatrical agent who had been approached by Herbert Seeley in regard to the services of his stepdaughter, Annabel Moore, a dancer who had become locally famous with her performance of something called the Butterfly Dance at various theaters and other locations. Seeley wanted to hire Miss Moore to dance in the nude from the waist down. The negotiations over the price to rent this young woman were ultimately unsuccessful. Well, the collapse of the negotiations between Mr. Seeley and Mr. Moore should have been the end of it. But Seeley made the fatal mistake of trying to bypass the agent and to contact Annabel Moore directly. And it was not long before Mr. Moore learned of this attempt to go behind his back. And he was not happy. Perhaps he remembered the old saying that revenge is a dish best served cold. So he waited until the night of the party and walked over to the police station where he spotted Captain Chapman and told him all about the outrageously indecent proposition that his stepdaughter had received. And he also told him that he had every reason to believe that equally immoral and indecent things were happening on that very same evening at Sherry's restaurant. And you, dear listeners, already know what happened after that. Except that it was now all out in the open. The entire chain of events had been triggered solely because some random theatrical agent got annoyed with some random rich punk. And from there, it only got worse for Mr. Moore. Under cross-examination, he was forced to admit that he had been living mainly off of his stepdaughter's earnings for the past several years, and had once even booked her to perform at a notorious brothel in Chicago. These disgusting facts were made even more disgusting once Annabel Moore herself was called to testify and told about what had happened when she had been contacted directly by Mr. Seeley and Mr. Phipps, and the negotiations that followed. By the way, it is not entirely clear 
whether Miss Moore was aware at the time that Mr. Phipps was a rival theatrical agent. A man came in my room on the 19th of December and said some gentleman wanted me to go see Mr. Lehman about dancing at Sherry's after midnight for $15. I went to Mr. Lehman's office. Mr. Lehman said it was a dinner for Mr. Steely. He wanted to know if I did high kicking. I said yes. He asked for me to wait for the gentleman arranging the dinner. Mr. Phipps and another man came in after a while. I showed him what I could do. Mr. Phipps said he wanted more. I said I didn't understand. And he said, I want you to dance without your tights. He wanted me to be nude from the waist down. I said, no lady would dance without her tights. Mr. Phipps said, no matter. They will all be so drunk at dinner, they won't know whether you have tights on or not. I went out. There was a man outside the office. I guess I looked upset. And he said, Annabelle, what's the matter? I said, two men have just insulted me terrible. And he advised me to go home and never mind. Annabelle Moore was followed on the witness stand by Captain Chapman. He had gotten his whiskers trimmed and he was wearing his best suit because he had been looking forward to this day. He had been waiting a long time to be able to tell his side of the story. But even he became a bit uncomfortable when he ended up having to admit that he had exchanged pictures with Annabelle Moore. I told her I was proud to know a woman who would protect her honor. And I said I would protect a woman's honor with my life. Unfortunately for Captain Chapman, he must have been out of the room when Miss Moore had admitted on cross-examination that she had a rather flexible opinion in regard to her honor or how much it needed protecting. Well, some time went by. And Mr. Phipps wrote me an offer with $20, so I no longer felt so insulted by him. I wrote him back that I was willing to appear. Yes, dear listeners, once Mr. Phipps had offered Annabelle Moore a few extra dollars, she agreed to perform, as requested. However, for whatever reason, he never got back to her. I will interject at this point that the amount of money we are talking about whether it was $15 or $20, was not chump change in 1896 or 1897. Those numbers translate into $400 to $500 in present-day currency. James Armstrong, another theatrical agent, testified that several of his dancers had been contacted by Mr. Seeley and Mr. Phipps about the possibility of performing nude or partially nude at the party. Unfortunately, his effort to sound appalled ended up seeming more like sour grapes when he was obligated to answer questions about the number of his dancers that he had lost to Mr. Phipps. A bit later, when Herbert Seeley was called to the stand and the questioning began, he was just shredded. He might as well have just thrown himself into a buzzsaw especially since Captain Chapman's lawyer had the annoying habit of knowing a lot more than Seeley had anticipated. For example, there were questions about the party gifts that one of the entertainers had been asked to present to the guests, some of which were so obscene that no respectable newspaper was willing to print a description 
However, the dancer Minnie Renwood, in her testimony, had shed some light on the topic of the gifts. Mr. Phipps said he wanted me to hand out gifts that had been hand-picked for the guests. There were 22 of them, and they gave me a paper with comic rhymes to say one for each gift. So I did my dance in front of Mr. Seeley and all the other gentlemen, and then when I finished, I kind of sashayed over to each guest and gave them their gift. I couldn't believe what the gifts were. I do not want to say what they were. They were disgusting. One gift was a syringe. I almost fainted when I saw it. But all of the men in the room were laughing, like as though it was the most funny thing they had ever seen. That was the least disgusting one. I hope you will not make me say what the rest of them were. James Phipps, the theatrical agent, was also called to testify. He was the person who had enabled Herbert Seeley to connect with the array of dancers and other entertainers who had performed at the party. On the witness stand, he was asked about his occupation. He said that he had been in business as a theatrical agent for over 17 years and that he had furnished performers to clubs, private parties, and churches. Attorney Howe turned to his partner Hummel and spoke in a whisper that was loud enough to be heard throughout the room. I wonder if he ever furnished Little Egypt to a church. Well, speaking of Little Egypt, it was not long before she was called to testify. The afternoon of January 12th would be her day in the spotlight. Her lawyer, William Howe, was wearing a baby blue tie with a diamond stick pin in the shape of a fork-tailed devil. He stood in front of Chairman Grant and waited for the room to turn silent. He then said, As the poet Byron says, On with the dance! Shall I bring in my little client, Little Egypt? He was told to go ahead. And then, a moment later, she practically scampered up to the witness stand. Every eye fell upon her. The all-male crowd of spectators craned and tilted their heads so that they would not miss a word or a gesture. The reporter for the New York Journal went on to describe Little Egypt as she took center stage. Quote, Her lips were painted a fiery red that set off, by contrast, the ivory whiteness of her fine teeth. Her eyes were bright, restless. Unquote. She wore a winter coat made of sealskin, which she removed before she sat down, because of the heat of the room. And, upon opening her coat, it was quickly revealed that she was wearing a bright blue, skin-tight dress with silver horizontal stripes that sparkled. The dress was described as being made of, quote, some crinkly stuff, unquote. Little Egypt then seated herself with a sly smile that practically mesmerized the room. So it was easy to understand why one newspaper joked that perhaps Captain Chapman should consider raiding his own trial. Big Bill Howe then spoke to Chairman Grant and the other commissioners and announced 
that he would be very careful in his questioning, because if little Egypt were to tell everything she knew about the Seely bachelor party, she could end up in prison, or at the very least, never be able to work again. You know that I must protect public morality, as far as I have the power, and really, well, it's simply too dreadful, all of this is, so I will be very careful in my questioning. Well, almost as soon as those words were out of his mouth, William Howe launched into a line of questioning that was, of course, specifically designed to have little Egypt tell everything that she knew. She was asked under oath what she had been hired to do by Mr. Phipps, the theatrical agent. She said that he had asked her to do some dances and poses for, quote-unquote, a party of artistes. A little Egyptian pose on a little pedestal in the altogether. A moment later, in response to a question, she clarified her answer in regard to what Phipps had asked her to do. Oh, monsieur. I do just a little pose in the altogether as a little Egyptian slave girl. The story she then told was a simple one. I say I do what is proper for art. I do just a little pose in the altogether as a little Egyptian slave girl. The pose in the altogether was for the encore. First I do the danse de ventre. The lawyer for Captain Chapman asked, What did she mean by the altogether? Did she mean nude? Well, at this point, little Egypt cast down her eyes for a moment and then raised them while flashing a smile that showed her gleaming teeth. Then, a moment later, before she could say anything, Colonel James, the attorney for Herbert Seeley, immediately jumped up with an objection. If she said the altogether, she meant the altogether. How did she know what Mr. Phipps meant when he said the altogether? Maybe he meant altogether dressed. The objection was denied. But when questioning resumed, little Egypt managed to avoid giving a direct answer. Instead, she simply repeated that Mr. Phipps had asked her to dance for, quote, a party of artistes, unquote, and that I do what is proper for art. Unfortunately, the combination of fractured English and fractured French spoken by Little Egypt did not make clear that she had never actually performed her little pose on a little pedestal. She explained that what had happened was that as she was getting ready for her entrance at the party, Captain Chapman and his policemen had unexpectedly arrived, and she was suddenly picked up and carried from her little blue waiting room, furnished with champagne, to a hidden yellow one, which was stocked with wine. <laughs> Quick, they take me to a room that are of lemons. <laughs> there, I was an hour. Much wine was given to me. When the policeman eventually left the building, Little Egypt did do her dance, 
in her skimpy Egyptian slave girl costume. But Mr. Phipps had called off the second dance and the nude encore, just in case the police decided to return. Little Egypt said she was disappointed. However, after she finished describing her dance and what had happened, the lawyer for Captain Chapman asked her a question. Did any of the guests put their hands on you? We, he just take me that way. There on my little leg, we. He then asked, did he pinch your leg? We, oui, we. Oui. And not long after that, the testimony of little Egypt came to an end. By all reports, she clearly enjoyed the time she spent on the witness stand. She laughed, bounced, gestured, and winked at people that she recognized in the courtroom. The New York Herald called it, quote, amusing outside of the filth, unquote. But after the conclusion of the testimony of Little Egypt, it suddenly became clear to Chairman Grant that he had let things get out of control. Up to this point, his guiding principle for the hearing was that, quote, the truth will harm no one, unquote. And he was apparently naive enough to believe it. In fact, so much so that his fellow Commissioner Roosevelt referred to him as a chucklehead. It began to dawn on Chairman Grant that sometimes the truth could hurt, especially as local newspapers were flooded with stories about the party and rumors spread that the dancers were not the only ones who had been carefree about their clothing or lack of clothing. Perhaps for these reasons, not one of the guests who had attended the Seeley party were asked to testify. Chairman Grant had evidently decided that the testimony of Little Egypt had exploded quite enough dynamite. No more was necessary. Moreover, some of the lawyers had received anonymous letters in female handwriting, politely suggesting certain specific questions for particular men. This information was quietly brought to the attention of the commissioners, who decided that enough was enough. They announced that they believed that they had acquired sufficient evidence and testimony to make a decision. The board effectively decided that although Chapman clearly had no right to enter private premises without a warrant based on an unverified accusation from a stranger, but that his error was excusable because otherwise the city would be putting its stamp of approval on the indecent events that had taken place at the party. In other words, if the party was bad, then Chapman must be good. So the charges against him were dismissed. But that was not the end of the story. A few weeks later, Herbert Seeley and James Phipps were arrested for conspiracy to instigate the crime of indecent exposure by Little Egypt and Minnie Renwood. Big Bill Howe, of course, represented the two entertainers, but his services in this case were unnecessary because the grand jury ultimately decided that it would be against the interests of public morality to put the case on trial. By the way, 
the dancers who had testified were correct in their belief that they would beneficially profit from the free publicity. Every one of them was soon booked for more public appearances than they could handle, including a briefly famous off-Broadway play based on the party and its aftermath. Surprisingly, Annabelle Moore, who did not perform at the party, ended up getting more newspaper publicity than any of the dancers who did. Little Egypt passed away in 1908 with an estate of over $200,000, the equivalent of more than $5 million in today's currency. And depending on what source you believe, Little Egypt may really have been Catherine Devine, an Irish-American girl born and raised in New York City. Or she may have been an immigrant from Algeria, or possibly Montreal, Canada, which might explain her familiarity with French and her weakness in English. Interestingly, after she passed away, her name did not die with her. Over the next five decades, the name Little Egypt was adopted by nearly a dozen other exotic dancers across the United States and Canada, some of whom even falsely pretended to be the original Little Egypt. Hey, Jim. Yes? I have a little bit of trivia to add to the story, if it's okay. Go ahead. You mentioned that a young lady named Minnie Renwood had performed a dance at the Sealy Bachelor Party, dressed in a scanty Santa Claus costume, and that her dance was called Santa Up to Date? Well, our listeners might be interested to know that during 1895 and 1896, the two years before the party, Minnie had been touring the eastern half of the U.S. as the star of a musical comedy that was called Faust Up to Date, which was based on an 1808 play about a man tempted by the devil. It must have been at least somewhat popular at the time, since obviously Santa Up to Date is definitely a twist on the name of Minnie's play, Faust Up to Date. Oh, I have one other little item that I think is worth mentioning. In this episode, Jim, you mostly use the phrase the party or the bachelor party to describe the event that Herbert Seeley had organized to celebrate his brother's wedding. But way back in 1897, when the party was being talked about in the newspapers, they mostly used the phrase the Seeley dinner. Sometimes they even called it the awful Seeley dinner. But now, since it's over 120 years later, it's not 100% clear whether they were saying that seriously or as kind of a joke. <laughs> Thank you, Kit. And so, with that having been said, we would like to give our deepest and sincerest thanks to the kind and wonderful podcasters and listeners to this podcast who contributed their voice talents to this episode. Specifically, Floyd from the Pop List podcast, Carrie from the Books in the Wild podcast, and the Ghouls Just Want to Have Fun podcast, David from the Tales of the Fandom podcast, Aaron from the Brawless podcast, Karen from the Stat 
podcast. Pavo. From the Foot of the Mountain podcast, the Pancast podcast, and the That's No Moon, it's a podcast. Alex. From DACAPO Productions and the musical duo Bards of Copper. Kay. From this podcast. And, last but not least, Annabelle. From Annabelle Audios at Hotmail.com. Hey, wait, that's me. <laughs> We have included their full names, voice credits, and links to their podcasts, etc. in the show notes. And, by the way, just to be clear, when I say voice credits, I mean you can see the specific role which each person performed on this episode if you go to the show notes. And the same thing is true in regard to the show notes for any previous episode. Now, having clarified that, let me again say thanks to everyone who contributed their voice to this episode. You have no idea how much we appreciate each of you for being a friend of our show. Okay, at this point, we want to thank an extra wonderful group of listeners. Specifically, those of you who are kind and thoughtful enough to write and post a review of our podcast on iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts. And the thanks we are going to give you is a shout-out on this episode. So, I am now going to turn the show over to Kit, who graciously volunteered to host our shout-out segment while I rest my voice for a little while. Hello, all you wonderful listeners. We are now going to give our shout-outs to everyone who recently left a review on iTunes for the Forgotten News Podcast. This is Kit Karen, and I'll be your host for this segment. But first, before I begin, I would like to apologize for the fact that we haven't given any shout-outs on recent episodes. Jim says to tell you that he's really sorry about that, and it just got past him. He gets a little self-conscious about things like that, and I think it's probably the reason why he asked me to do this segment. <laughs> also, until very recently, neither Jim nor anyone connected with the Forgotten News podcast was aware that on iTunes, you can only see the reviews that were posted from the country you live in. You cannot see reviews that are posted from other countries unless you use an app or some other service that will let you see the iTunes reviews from other countries. So, on this episode, we will be including all past reviews from outside the U.S. since we did not know about the restrictions from iTunes until now. And obviously, all recent reviews from inside the U.S. By recent, we mean since the last time that there was an iTunes review segment on the podcast, which was about maybe two or three months ago. <laughs> so, with all that having been said, let's start with the first review, which is a five-star review from Sarah of the Salty Canadian Podcast. Sarah says that the Forgotten News podcast is very well researched and a joy to listen to. Overall, she says that this is a great podcast, 
but she has one constructive criticism, and that is that she would like for the voice clips to flow together better and not be choppy. Well, the thing is, Sarah made that comment back in July, when this podcast was just getting started, and hopefully... The audio editing has improved a lot since then. <laughs> but thanks for your kind words and input, Sarah. By the way, Sarah has a really great podcast of her own. It ranges from very informative to very funny, sometimes both at the same time. And for that reason alone, you should give it a listen. And before we forget, Sarah is a friend of our show and has even contributed some voice clips from time to time. Thank you so much, Sarah. So, we have a five-star review from Sikatula, who is in Canada. Sikatula says that the Forgotten News podcast is well done with interesting stories laid out in a way that certainly keeps me listening and looking forward to more. That is such a nice compliment. Thank you so much. So we have another five-star review. This one is from Bookshelves91, who says, I've listened to all five episodes and I think the concept is great. I really enjoy how other podcasters' voices help out. Can't wait for the next episode. Thank you. We do really appreciate that. We have a five-star review from Mom to K and B. She says, I appreciate how much research and effort you put into this podcast. I enjoy the topics and look forward to following along as you develop and fine-tune the show. Keep it up. Aw, that is so nice of you to say. Thank you so much. We have another five-star review from Turn of Phrases podcast, who says, This podcast drives into history that many people won't know. Entertaining and informative. Nice work. Thanks. <laughs> we really appreciate it. We have a five-star review from Amherst333, who thought that, it's a great concept. The first few episodes were a little iffy, but over time, this podcast has come into its own. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for letting us know that the show has improved. If you feel that way, then we can be sure that a lot of other listeners must feel the same way. So thank you so much for your comment. We have a five-star review from Pavo Sings Live in the UK. Pavo says that this podcast is fascinating with varied stories told in a different way. He says that I will look forward to future episodes. Pavo is a friend of our show and he has a couple of podcasts of his own. The Foot of the Mountain podcast, which is about diet and weight loss and the Pancast, which is a fun show about pop culture. We think you should give them a try. By the way, Pavo has contributed some voice clips to our podcast, including on this episode. 
Thank you so much, Pavo. Next, we have two five-star reviews, both with identical wording from Sleepyhead90 and J. Russ Terrier. We're a little confused about that, but here's what he says. Great trivia. I love bringing up these stories as trivia or water cooler talk at the office. Thanks for the insightful, deep cut content. While you are very welcome, and thank you so much for the kind words. We have another five-star review, this time from Mound House Dude. He says, great show. If you're a fan of history at all, then this show is for you. <laughs> thank you. That is so nice of you to say. We have a five-star review from Valkyrie, who says, it's a really great idea for a podcast, and I'm excited to watch it grow and develop. Smart structure, and it has amazing potential to become one of my favorite shows. Oh, that's so sweet to know. Thank you so much, Valkyrie. We have another five-star review from BSP, the Idiot Syncrasy Files podcast who says, great content, I love your theme music, very well informed, great research. Thank you so much for the compliment, and I am so sorry if I screwed up on your name at all. <laughs> we have a five-star review from the Chick Lit Murder Mysteries podcast, who says that this is such an interesting idea for a podcast. While I don't necessarily love acting segments on any podcast, personal taste, this show does them very well. I'm intrigued to listen to more because old news is so interesting. Thank you so much for those kind words. We think we should mention that Katie from the Chicklet Murder Mysteries podcast is a friend of our show. Hadness even contributed a voice clip to us, despite that our format isn't something that she is normally a fan of. <laughs> anyway, Katie and her co-host Frances have a great podcast. It's lots of fun, and you should definitely give it a try, if you haven't already. We have another five-star review from Unframe of Mind, who says... We are kicking it old school, and when I first heard about this podcast, I thought it was going to be for revisiting relatively recent news that has been forgotten about in the chaos of the day. But we're going way back to stories that I've never even heard to begin with. Always great to learn new things. That is such a great compliment. Thank you so much, Unframe of Mind. We have another five-star review from the True Crime Storytime podcast in Australia. They gave us a great review. Every episode is an experience. What I love about the podcast is I feel like I'm listening to old school radio. Imagining how families used to get their entertainment before televisions were around. The old and forgotten cases Jim covers, he has found a way to transport me back into the particular era to go along with it. 
It's really great, factual and relaxing, and it turns each episode into its own experience. Just wanted to let you know that I really appreciate your show and the work that goes into it. Very, very clever podcasting. Thank you so much for the compliments. You are simply too kind. By the way, Samantha from True Crime Storytime is a friend of our show and has contributed voice clips and a lot of great advice to us. Sam and her co-host Casey have a great podcast that is very informative and you should absolutely give it a listen. We have another five-star review from Henning00007 from Norway. (laughs) Wow, it's hard to believe we have listeners that far away, but apparently we do. Well, here is what Henning00007 says about us. So many great stories that I can't believe how many of them I forgot Thanks for sharing. That is so very sweet. You are very welcome. We have a review from Eljafeta Coma, who says, Strong stories. Jim is a great storyteller, and the voices he selects always bring life to these long-forgotten stories. I like the music, too. Thank you so much, and we really appreciate knowing that. Finally, last but not least, we have a review from Sky Devil 2, who says, This is great! Such a unique twist on your typical true crime podcast. I'm only one episode in, and I can't wait to listen to more. Gosh, thanks! But we hope this doesn't disappoint you. But the Forgotten News podcast covers a lot of topics other than true crime stories. Anyway, that is the end of our reviews and shoutouts. To anyone who gave us a review since the last time we did shoutouts a few episodes ago. So with all that having been said, I'll turn the episode back over to Jim. Hey, wow. Thank you, Kit. Good job. And... Thank you, listeners, for taking the time to leave a review on iTunes. It really means a lot to us. You have no idea. It really does. By the way, speaking of iTunes, we would truly appreciate it if the rest of our listeners would take a moment to go to iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts, and leave a rating and review for the show. Thanks in advance for doing that, and I promise we will give a shout-out to anyone who leaves a review for the Forgotten News podcast in the future. We will also give a shout-out to anyone who makes a monetary contribution to the show. We've even made it easy for you. There's a link at the bottom of the show notes page where you can just click and give a contribution of any amount, small or large. Even a dollar would help to offset our time and expense. Speaking of shout-outs... I will now give one to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the music used on this episode. I have included specific credits for him and his music in the show notes. Oh, one last thing. 
We would love to hear your comments, feedback, opinions, ideas, thoughts about anything in regard to this episode or any past episode or the show in general. So, with that in mind, our email address is ForgottenNewsPodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to type that as all one word. There are no hyphens, dashes, or underscores. We also have a Facebook page. If you don't already belong, just go to the search bar on Facebook and type Forgotten News Podcast, and it will take you right there. You can also contact and follow us on Twitter and give your thoughts about almost anything. But please note, our Twitter handle is at NewsForgotten and not Forgotten News. So, long story short, please feel free to use any of those methods to interact with us. We truly and sincerely want to hear from you. Finally, I encourage you to take a look at the show notes for this episode or any other episode that interests you. And as far as I know, every platform that carries our podcast also includes our show notes in one way or another. If you have any trouble finding our show notes or if you just have no idea what I'm talking about, simply send us an email and I'll give you a direct link. And now, with all that having been said, goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. You will now be returned back to the present day, and we hope that we can count on you to join us for our next episode. Two things that a healthy person hates most between heaven and hell are a woman who is not dignified and a man who is.